William Kent Kruger, Kent to his friends, got thrown out of college during his radical student years and he says it was the making of him as a writer. Having recently published his 18th mystery in the Cork O'Connor series, the last nine of them all New York Times bestsellers, we could hardly disagree. Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler, and in Binge Reading today, Kent talks about the secret behind his remarkable success as a writer, and I bet it's not what you think it is, why he's fascinated by father-son stories, and how he sees himself more as a storyteller than a writer. We've got three ebook copies of Kent's latest bestseller, Lightning Strike, to give away to three lucky readers in our Mysteries Alive giveaway. Go to our website, thejoysofbingereading.com, to enter the draw. And remember, if you enjoy this podcast, you can find more exclusive bonus content. For example, Kent answering the Getting to Know You five quickfire questions feature we've got running by becoming a subscriber on Binge Reading on Patreon. It'll cost you the equivalent of a cup of coffee a month. Check it out on patreon.com forward slash the joys of binge reading. But now here's Kent. Hello there, Kent, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Oh, what a pleasure to be with you, Jenny. Thank you for the invitation to be a part of this. Look, you've just about to publish Lightning Strike book 18 in the Cork O'Connor series. In fact, by the time this goes to air, Lightning Strike will be out. You're an award-winning New York Times writer and a best-selling writer, and the critics agree that even at book 18, you're still fresh and unmissable. But Lightning Strike has a twist of its own because it's what we call a prequel. You take us right back to the beginning of the story and introduce us to your protagonist as Cork O'Connor, a boy, not even a man at this stage. Now, that's an interesting twist. Tell us what inspired you to do that. Well, Cork has a significant history that I have alluded to many times in the stories, but I've never really gone back to explore that history, particularly the relationship that Cork had with his father. For those who are not familiar with my series, Cork O'Connor was at one point the sheriff of the fictional Tamarack County, Minnesota. And when Cork was a boy, his father was also sheriff of Tamarack County and a man who clearly greatly influenced his son. And so I wanted to be able to go back and explore more deeply that significant relationship, also the relationship Cork had with his mother and several of the other characters who were recurring in the stories and who have influenced Cork dramatically across the course of his life. Now, I noticed that in the past when Rita has asked you, where should I start this series or does it matter where I begin them? You've always advised them to go to book one, which is called Iron Lake. But you now are saying that really you think the best idea would be to start with this book. Why is that? Well, this book can be read very much as what in the business we call a standalone. It requires absolutely no knowledge of the history 
to the Cork the very long running Cork O'Connor series, and can be enjoyed simply between the covers of this particular novel. But it gives the reader an excellent introduction into the characters that the reader will meet again and again in the course of the series, should they decide to read them. Not only the characters, but the elements that will typically be a part of a Cork O'Connor story, the location a good sense of the kind of uh, storyteller that I am. So this is really a good place to begin. And if readers appreciate uh, Lightning Strike, then I advise them to go to the beginning of the series and start reading with Iron Lake. Great. The series does unfold in real time. So some writers choose to leave their hero on a kind of vague time where you're never really quite sure if they're ageing and nothing too much changes in their world. But you very much have taken Cork through life stages, being a, a, a husband, being a father. Now in the book before this one, in Desolation Mountain, I think it's called, he's a grandfather. So you take him through all of those life stages why is, was it important to you to do that rather than keep him in this no man's land of a mystery series? Well, here's Mystery Writing 101, Jenny. When you create a series with a central protagonist, you have only two choices, I think, in the kind of protagonist you're going to create. You can either create a static protagonist or a dynamic protagonist. What's a static protagonist? That's someone who never changes. Someone who's the same book to book to book. Think Sherlock Holmes. You've read one Sherlock Holmes story. He's going to be the same guy in every story you read after that. What's a dynamic protagonist? That's somebody who does change. Somebody who ages. Somebody for whom what happens in a story is reflected in subsequent entries in the series and how that character responds to the world. So when I wrote my first Cork O'Connor novel, I saw is a man of about 40. Now I'm writing him in his mid-50s. He's aged approximately 15 or 16 years. His family have aged along with him. His youngest child, Stephen, who was five in the first story in the series, is now I think I'm writing him now 21 in my current novel, the, the current manuscript I'm at work on. And you know what that that was one of the best decisions I could ever have made because what it does is it keeps writing the series interesting for me because every time I sit down to write a new Cork O'Connor novel, I'm writing about different people. They aren't the same people they were in the last story. Things have happened that have caused them to change their perceptions of themselves and the world and the relationships to each other. So that really keeps it interesting for me. And I think that's part of what keeps it interesting for readers as well. Yeah, I think it probably helps create a world that they really feel they're a part of because their own world is changing around them all the time anyway, isn't it? And that's why when readers ask where they should begin, I always recommend they begin at the beginning of the series and read through in order because it's a much richer experience. They're seeing all of the changes that uh, occur in the Cork O'Connor clan across the courts of the novels. Yeah. Now, Cork has a heritage which is part Irish and part Native American. From the very start, you included the Native American culture and people in the books. Now, I don't know if you've got it, what links you've got to uh, the local Ojibwe people yourself, but how did you manage to do the research for that? It's very intense, that part of the story. It's very real. When I decided to include the Ojibwe, the Anishinaabeg, as an element of the stories I was going to write, I knew ab about as much 
about the Ojibwe, the native people here, as most white people do, which is nothing. But I was a cultural anthropology major in college, and so the idea of learning about this culture, not my own, was quite intriguing to me. And so I began in the way all good academics begin. I began by reading. I read everything I could to get my hands on, the early ethnographies, books written by uh, Ojibwe authors about Ojibwe myth and Ojibwe ritual, some great Ojibwe storytellers. I read their work. And when I thought I had a grasp of the culture, I began to write my first novel, Iron Lake. Now, in the course of all of that uh, reading and research, I began to meet members of the Ojibwe community and form relationships that have over these two decades become important friendships for me. So that's how it all began and that's how it's progressed. I am uh, always terribly aware that I'm a white person trespassing on a culture not my own. So I work very hard to get it right. Yeah. Now, for those who aren't familiar with the finer details of US geography, because of course I'm in New Zealand, some of our listeners are in Australia, a good number of them are in the States, but even people in the States may not be so aware of northern Minnesota, which is where you live. That is an area with quite a high Indian population still, isn't it? And it's regarded, it's a Midwest state, but I just wonder if, if traditionally is it one that's been included as one of the ones where Westerns are written from? Well, I certainly don't regard them as such. And my guess is uh, people who are looking for a good, a good Western wouldn't regard them as such, but they do fall into what has become a fairly rich, I guess, subgenre here, particularly in mysteries, which is the regional mystery. And so stories set here in the Midwest, particularly the upper Midwest, have their own, their own charm and attract readers for their own reasons. But a reader who reads one of my stories is not going to expect the same experience necessarily that the reader of someone like Tony Hillerman, who also writes or wrote about Native cultures, achieved because he set his work in the Southwest. And while we deal with the same um, cross-cultural issues, our, our settings are so profoundly different that it's a very different kind of read. They do share quite a number of, of similar things in terms of a lone good guy facing overwhelming odds, a sense of spiritual and mystical connection with the landscape, and as you've mentioned, the Native American. But I, I do understand that, yes, it's a bit confusing these days what exactly a modern Western, in quotes, is. Yeah, but you know, in that in those two elements particularly that you just mentioned, the loner, the lone wolf, and an attachment to a particular kind of landscape or atmosphere. Um, my novels and, and many of those like me really very much resemble classic PI novels. You think, for example, of Raymond Chandler and, and Philip Marlowe. Very much a loner, has his own code of ethics, uh, works very hard for justice in his own way, and he travels the mean streets of the Los Angeles area. That's his territory where he feels comfortable and it's evoked beautifully. So there are similarities there as well, not just to the Westerns. Yeah, yeah, that's that's great. They also they explore the nature of family relationships in depth, and you've mentioned about the importance of his father to Cork. It seems to me that threads right through the whole series, and it's very much there in Lightning Strike, where he's not only got his son Stephen, but his grandson that he's very aware of protecting and, and the sense of generational exchange. How do you balance that characterization against the need for the plots and the action that a mystery is also traditionally expected to have? 
It's a juggling act. What can I say? Sometimes I walk a pretty uh, thin line. Pace is always a significant element that I'm aware of as I'm writing a story. Um, If the pace lags, you're going to lose a reader. So you want to keep the pace up. But I'm also aware that across all of these novels, that one of the reasons a reader reads these stories is because uh, they have become enamored of not just Corporal Connor, but all of the characters, particularly his family, who have figured significantly in almost every novel. So it's not, these are not just the Cork O'Connor stories, these are stories of the Cork O'Connor clan. And so I have built these characters over 20 years now, and readers who followed me all the way through it, they know the characters well, they have fallen in love with some of them. They have grieved when some of them have, have passed on. And so that, for me, that's just, that is as much a part of the attraction as any fast pace that I might be able to put into the plot. A Night in Desolation Mountain that you make Cork's daughter, Jenny, a novelist. And the story is so real that actually you even give a name for the novel that she's written. And I felt tempted to actually Google it to see if there was a name, a novel with that name. But it seemed to me that storytelling is something that's really precious to you. And I did notice that you have spoken on that topic of storytelling in a Christian environment at some some state in the past. Could you tell us a bit about the way that you regard storytelling? It's interesting that you should uh, raise this question because I just finished an essay for Crime Reads publication this morning, turned it in this morning uh, about, and I called it the storyteller's promise. You know, a lot of I'm often called a writer, uh, or more specifically, a mystery writer, but the truth is I think of myself primarily as a storyteller. And I think as a storyteller, as I've said in the essay, I have have an obligation, kind of a sacred obligation, to uh, to speak the truths that are essential to who who we are as human beings. And so I, you know, when I set out to write a story, sure, I want to entertain. I want to make sure that the reader has a good time. But I really try to get it uh, deeper things, deeper issues. And so one of the things I do write about is family, because that fascinates me. We are all, we have all been part of a family. We grew out of those families. We've created families of our own. There are forces that seek to divide families, and there are forces that pull them back together. And as a storyteller, I want to tell the truths of those kinds of uh, dynamics. Justice is another issue that needs to be explored in an honest way. So I think it's the storyteller's obligation to seek out the truths that are common to all humanity and explore them as deeply and as honestly as we can. Yeah, and I do think that gives your mystery novels a depth that a lot of traditional cosies, for example, they're, they're fun and they're entertaining, they work to a formula, but yours do have that extra layer of depth that is not there in some mysteries. And you've won an amazing bag of awards. We won't go into all of them. Practically every book, it seems to me, has either won an award or been a bestseller. I read somewhere that the last nine Cork O'Connors have all been bestsellers. But there's one that stands out, and that is your standalone book, Ordinary Grace, which won an award for best novel. And quite a few of the writers that I speak to have mentioned that Ordinary Grace is one book that they really admire. It's the story of a Methodist minister's son who is murdered in small town Minnesota in the 1960s. And it's told from the point of view of his brother, an adolescent boy called Frank. Um, You say that this was a story that just would not leave you alone. Can you tell us a bit about the genesis for it? 
Well, the essential truth at the heart of Ordinary Grace is the importance of the spiritual journey that I believe we're all on. If you were to read my Cork O'Connor stories, you would see that there is an undercurrent in most of the stories that deals with the spiritual journey. It's something that comes very naturally to Cork O'Connor because he's a, a because he's a man of mixed heritage. He has a foot in two different uh, spiritual traditions: his white Catholicism, he's Irish Catholic, and his Ojibwe spirituality. And so, very often in the stories, Cork is trying to figure out where his unique spiritual path lies, and that was certainly has always been an issue for me. And so, I was looking for a story that would allow me to explore more deeply the importance of the spiritual journey in our lives. That was one reason I wrote the novel. But the other was this. I'd been looking for a story for a very long time that would allow me to go back and recall an important period in my own life, the summer I was 13 years old, and uh, and recall it and evoke it in such a way that I could uh, use bits and pieces of my own life, my own memories, my own perceptions uh, to create the work. So for those people who have read Ordinary Grace, the drum family at the heart of that story is essentially my family. Um, the town of New Bremen that I created for the story is so very like the small Midwestern towns where I spent my adolescence. And I wanted to write it in such a way that readers who were born decades later could still read that novel and know what it was like to be a 13-year-old boy in a small Midwestern town in the summer of 1961. And that's really where the story came from. And I had been wanting to write that story for a very long time. In fact, I'd taken a couple of cracks at it, but it wasn't until the voice of Frank Drum came to me, kind of like, kind of like a flame of fire a la Pentecost that I finally was able to do it. And I heard him speak that opening line to me, all the dying that summer began with the death of a child. And then I was able to write the story. Yeah, yeah. You obviously have a real f- affinity with the child's voice because you wrote a follow-up, a connected story, the, This Tender Land, After Ordinary Grace, which looks at four runaway orphans who take a canoe trip down the Mississippi in the years of the Great Depression. Very Huckleberry Finn, but with probably a much darker underside. Tell us what led you to do the follow-up story as well? How does it relate back to Frank? Well, I have, with Ordinary Grace, This Tenderland, and now uh, Lightning Strike, I have essentially written three stories that deal with adolescent males. And I have found that to be a very easy force for me to capture. I think in large measure, because I, I'm kind of a firm believer, Jenny, that men don't mature much past 12 or 13 years of age. <laughs> We're always kind of stuck in our adolescence. <laughs> but here's where here's where this tender land came from. It's another story that I have wanted to write for a very long time. When I was 11 years old, that would have been in the fifth grade, toward the end of that year, our teacher read to the class The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. She did it by reading half an hour after lunch every day. I loved that book. Here was this kid. He was just like me. And he was out there on the Mississippi River having these really great adventures. And after that, of course, I had to read Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, which I loved even more. And so across my entire career as a writer, I have wanted someday to write a novel that would pay homage to Mark Twain that might be in its own way an updated version of Huckleberry Finn. And that's where this tender land came from. And it was the success of Ordinary Grace, really, both the critical and monetary success of Ordinary Grace, that allowed me to launch into that particular project. Because prior to Ordinary Grace, my publisher really only wanted corporate. O'Connor novels from me. So that 
Ordinary Grace broke me out. I have ex- extended my reach with this tender land, and I'm at work on a third standalone that will be a companion novel to both Ordinary Grace and this tender land. Great. I notice also it's probably no coincidence that you spent many years working in research on child development. That So you've got the academic strand alongside your personal experience. I guess that has also helped feed into your understanding of what is going on with these characters, has it? Well, the driving forces, I guess, in the works that I create with children is my understanding that children are incredibly resilient. If you look at the four vagabonds uh, at the heart of this tender land, they have all undergone incredible trauma, incredible loss, and yet they're able to rebound and build a family centered around the, the four of them. And together, uh, using all of their resources and their love for one another, make an epic journey in the summer of 1932. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But turning to your own reading, because we're starting to come to the end of our time together. We like to ask people about their reading and ask for their recommendations of books that they think listeners might like to read themselves. So tell us a little bit about your reading and have you ever been a binge reader as such? You know, I'm, I am typically not a binge reader. I pick and choose, I dabble here, I dabble there. I have to be honest with you, so much of my reading these days are what's called ARCs, Advanced Readers Copies, or Bound Galleys. And these are books that won't be available to readers uh, for a very long time, but I've been asked to read them with an eye to offering a dust jacket quote. Readers, listeners out there, I'm sure, are familiar with that quote that goes across the, you know, the top of every book. Stephen King says, this is the best thing since sliced bread, or the Bible. So a, a lot of my reading is done for that. But I also lead a book group for my uh, church. And uh, so I do a good deal of reading. But when I'm able to uh, pick those books that I would like to read for pleasure, I very often pick books that are similar to what I write and very often set in the Midwest or the, set, the heartland of the country. My most, The most recent read for me that knocked my socks off was a book written by Kristen Hanna called The Four Winds, which like this tender land is set during the Great Depression. That that one's set in the Dust Bowl area of the United States, and she is just so beautiful in her evocation of the, the incredible hardships that the Dust Bowl years and the Depression forced on those people. Uh, another book that I highly recommend for anybody who's read This Tender Land and enjoyed it would be a book called Before We Were Yours by Lisa Wingate, also set during the Great Depression and based on uh, tragic a tragic real situation in which children were essentially stolen from their families and adopted to very wealthy families. So those are some of my recommendations. Yeah, yeah. But one more recommendation for binge reading. I do have a, an author that when I discovered him, I read everything by him, a guy named Frederick Bachman. Readers might be familiar with A Man Called Ove. Every book that I've read by Bachman has just been a delight. He's, he is such a compassionate human being with a wonderful sense of humor. Oh, that's great. Look, we mentioned you, that you're quite a long time, I think, probably a, a good many years you were working full-time as a child researcher, and you developed a way of writing, a sort of compartmentalization, almost, you might say, of your writing life. Tell us a bit about how you structured your time so that you could work in that job, but also get your books done. Sure. I moved to Minnesota so my wife could go to law school here. 
And when she entered law school, I became the sole supporter of our family. I was the guy who had to keep a roof overhead and food on the table, but I wanted to be a writer. And so I had to figure out a way to meet my responsibilities and also develop as a storyteller. We were living two blocks from this iconic cafe in St. Paul, a place called the St. Clair Broiler, that opened its doors at 6 a.m. every morning, seven days a week. So I pitched this idea to my wife, honey, if you're willing to get the kids up and dressed and fed and off to school first thing so I can go write, I swear to you, when I come home from my job at the end of the day, I will be the best husband, the best father you could possibly <laughs> imagine. Well, she bought it. So there I was every morning at six o'clock with my pen and my notebook in hand. And that became my regime. I still get up uh, at six o'clock every morning, seven days a week and spend the first two to three hours of each day writing. But you don't use a pen and paper anymore, do you? No, about my eighth novel, I was a little behind deadline. And, you know, if you write longhand, you have to transcribe to a computer or a word processor of some kind. And that takes time. And I thought, ah, oh, you know, if I could write directly to the computer, maybe I could meet deadline. And so I, you know, that was a scary proposition because writing with my, my pen and notebook was part of the magic of the creation. And I didn't want to monkey with the magic, but I, uh, I tried the writing directly to the keyboard and pff, what do you know? It works. <laughs> I think it's remarkable that you wrote, wrote eight books in longhand, actually. You know, I still know uh, writers who have become best-selling authors who still t type away on old manual typewriters. Wow. Because yeah. for them, it's a part of the magic. Yeah, yeah. I can imagine that, actually, the Imperial 66. I wouldn't mind trying to use Imperial 66, but you couldn't then just quickly use a thesaurus or Google, could you? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> um, look, Talking about your life and what's contributed to your writing, I was fascinated by the detail that you shared on your website about the way your own adolescence was interrupted, rather, by some radical action that, that occurred. You don't seem to have any regrets about it at all, but tell us about this experience and how it's contributed to your life and your writing. Sure. I matriculated Stanford University, one of the most prestigious institutions of higher learning here in the United States, in 1969. That was at the height of the Vietnam War, a conflict that tore our country apart in uh, terrible ways. It, it tore the nation apart, it tore communities apart, it tore families apart. In the spring of 1970, the, there was a situation that, a tragic situation that took place on the Kent State University in Ohio, in which the National Guard there opened fire on a group of protesters, killing a number of the students. Uh, about that same uh, period in time, we became aware that the government had been lying to us about the extent of the war in Vietnam, that in fact, we were carrying on the war in Laos and Cambodia as well. At that point in time, Stanford University had a relationship with an organization called SRI, the Stanford Research Institute, whose primary source of income was research at that point in time, research in military weaponry. There were many of us at Stanford who felt that was an inappropriate relationship for an institution like Stanford to maintain, particularly at that point in history. So we petitioned the, uh, the Board of Trustees to sever the relationship. We petitioned the administration. We marched, we demonstrated. But because, uh, of course, there were huge number amounts of money money involved, nobody listened to us. So finally in frustration, a group of us marched into the administration one day and occupied it, took it over. The building was vacated, we took control of it. And um, that night we, uh, we had a dance there in the area where we would have typically done our re registering for classes at midnight, the band, the dance band folded up and took off. Those of us who were going to occupy the building rolled out our sleeping bags and went to sleep. 
a huge tactical error because at 1 a.m. the Palo Alto riot squad swept through and arrested us. I was on a full scholarship to Stanford. It evaporated and I had to leave. But you know, I have never regretted that because I was really kind of getting to the point in my life where I thought college isn't teaching me what I need to know in order to be a writer, to be a storyteller. I need to go out and experience the world, not in an Ivy covered uh, institution, but out there working in the world like regular folks do. So I, I went out and logged timber and worked construction and mopped hospital floors. And so much of my appreciation of what it is to struggle in this in, in life, the struggles of working class people come from that experience. And also, I got to tell you this, Jenny, it's just so much more interesting to me to say that I was kicked out of Stanford <laughs> than that I graduated from the place. <laughs> That's right. I think that the way that you've sailed on through is the most remarkable and fantastic. Tell me, looking back down the tunnel of time, I guess you've almost already answered this, but I like to ask people, is there anything you'd change or do differently if you had the chance to, to have it over again? Nothing about my journey as a writer. There are a couple of couple of different decisions I might make about the writing itself. But in terms of the journey, no, it's been a good journey. And you know, I, this was the journey I was always meant to take. I believe we're all on the journey we were always meant to take. So I don't want to second guess that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And is there one thing you'd contribute more than any other to your success as a writer? My wife, who has from the very first believed profoundly in in supporting me in this dream that I've had of being a storyteller. And you know, when when young when young writers come to me and they ask me what's the best piece of advice you have to offer a young writer? It's this, marry somebody with a good job. My wife is an attorney, and so we haven't, we haven't had to uh, exist on bread and water at all while I've struggled to, uh, to become a storyteller, a published storyteller. That's wonderful. So tell us, looking ahead over the next 12 months, what have you got on your writing desk? What projects have you got underway and things that you really wanted to complete in the next 12 months? Sure. Well, I just embarked on revisions to the manuscript that will be the next novel in the Cork O'Connor series after Lightning Strike. It it uh, scheduled to be published in the fall of 2022. It's called Jawbone Creek. So I'll finish up the revisions for that novel. And I have already embarked on the beginning of the manuscript for the next standalone novel. And I'm just having a just a joyful time with it. So I will continue to work on that manuscript. Have you got any time or title yet, time for publication or title for that one, or is it still very much a work in progress? Yeah, I don't want to talk about that okay. one at all. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to diffuse the energy. No, I can fully understand that. And I, I guess that you like hearing from your readers. I very much picked that up from what we've said already. But if they want to contact you, how can they contact you? And has this period of restricted activity with the pandemic, you know, been difficult for you in terms of stopping with those interactions a bit more perhaps? Do you know, I feel a little guilty about the pandemic because I know it, many, many people have suffered terribly. I have not. I've been... I, in this period, I've been incredibly prolific, and I've reached out to uh, readers in an entirely different way. I have Zoomed, by the end of uh, this year, I've probably Zoomed with 300 book clubs internationally as a result of the pandemic. 
and so I, I will always now reach out to readers <laughs> with uh, a, an offer to Zoom with their book clubs if they'll have me. Although I am embarking on an in-person tour for Lightning Strike. It's been two years since I've done an in-person event. That is something that will that has changed dramatically and will be in place going forward. That'll be part of the new normal. It's great. Now, if anybody listening is in a book club and they would like to take up that invitation, what would be the best way to approach you to see if you could do do one for them? My website is www.williamkentkruger.com. There is a link on my website uh, if you would like to invite me to be a part of your uh, of your book group. There's also a link if you just want to contact me and, and uh, ask me a question or comment on my work, whatever you would like to do. You can find it on my website, www.williamkentkruger.com. That's wonderful, Kent. It's just fantastic. Thank you. It's been great talking to you today and all the very best. We've got a saying in New Zealand, a Maori language, Kia kaha, which is sort of like keep strong, all power to your arm, or kia kaha to you. Oh, I love that. Thank you. And right back at you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audioservices at gmail.com. Or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right, and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone as a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.